All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you here from New York City on the 27th day of February 2018. I do want to remind you that I'm the author of uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and uh, would like you to subscribe to my letter at miningstocks.com uh, or go. You can call our number here in New York, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours. Chen Lin's letter also is one that I highly recommend. You go to chenpicks.com. Chen has had a remarkable track record, and his focus is more on the biotechs and some on the energy stocks as well. He also does follow a number of uh, of gold mining issues, too. A very successful investor. You may want to consider subscribing to his letter. I do want to thank each of you for, for listening to this show, making it one of the more uh, one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. And also send your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We do need to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week are RN Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, Genesis Metals Corp., New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, uh, Novo Resources, and Uranium Energy. Now, I do have a couple of notes about a couple of our sponsors. First of all, Northern Empire announced yesterday a very strong drill intersection, uh, 123 meters of 1.41 grams per ton gold. And Michael Allen, the president and CEO of that company, was on this show on February 13th. I would suggest you may want to go back to listen to what he had to say at jtaylormedia.com. Go to the podcast page at jtaylormedia.com to listen to that interview. Uh, I will be commenting as well on this stock uh, this weekend in my newsletter. Uh, it is a company and a project they have in, in Nevada that definitely has the potential to become uh, extraordinary, in my view, uh, Carlin-style mineralization. Um, and I think this drill intercept is just one more indication that they may be onto something very, very substantial. Now, today, Novo Resources uh, is one of the few gold stocks that's up, and it's been up, up about 9 or 10%. Um, during the whole trading session today, uh, going counter to almost all the gold stocks, which are really getting hit rather hard as interest rates have climbed and the stock market is down in general. Um, a very interesting day for sure, but that Novo is able to counter the trend is very interesting, and I'm also pleased to say that we'll have that company's president and uh, chairman, Dr. Quentin Henning, will be with me after the first uh, commercial break. Before I talk about today's show, let me tell you that I interviewed David Stockman this past week. He explained why not only is there no way out of this financial market turmoil that lies ahead, 
that because of the creation of the debt-based money, the Fed over by the Fed over many decades, we are now facing the mother of all financial crises in David's view. So uh, I would also suggest you can listen to that very interesting, I think very insightful interview at jtaylormedia.com. Again, the podcast page at jtaylormedia.com. To listen to my interview, it was recorded last Friday with David Stockman. Today's show has been titled, When Will the Next Credit Crisis Occur? Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me this week. Now, for investors, there may be few questions more important than the one Alistair has attempted to answer in his recent gold money essay uh, titled, When Will the Next Credit Crisis Occur? When the next credit crisis hits, most asset prices are likely to decline dramatically in value as they did in 2008-2009, but which ones are the most vulnerable and which assets might actually protect you from those losses? How will gold fare in the next credit crunch? Well, that is certainly one of many questions that I'll have for Alistair, but right now I'm going to ask that question of Michael Oliver, who's with me again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you, and it's always good to tell my listeners that your website is olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com, and it's good to tell them that because I value your work so highly, which is why you're with me as often as I can get you on the show, and that's almost every week, so I'm really glad that you could be with me again. Michael, I interviewed, as I just noted, David Stockman last week, and uh, again, that's posted at jtaylormedia.com. David looks at this enormous amount of funding that is going on it's going to be required by the Fed, by the Treasury, that is, at the same time that the Fed is pulling money out of the system. Now, David said he is quite certain that the Fed will be raising rates at least four times this year. He noted that the next fiscal year, even with the you know, optimistic estimates of government, we will have a $1.2 trillion deficit that's going to have to be funded, plus the Fed will be pulling back $600 billion out of the economy as it tries to normalize its balance sheet. David's view, which is based on fundamentals, um, you know, has the Treasuries rising to 45 to 5% or so. So David is seeing a whole lot of gloom and doom ahead of the bond for the bond and stock markets. Now, what I value about you is not only your accuracy, but your dispassionate view of the markets. I mean, I told you a little bit ago that uh, Jerome Powell was uh, on at, at Capitol Hill for the first time today, and you said, oh, was he? I, you know, you didn't care much because, you know, what the politicians do and what we hear on the surface isn't really all that important to you. But what you do, uh, your dispassionate technical analysis, your momentum, structural analysis has just been spot on. So I have to ask you, what are your thoughts uh, as, you know, about some of these key markets now as, as push comes to shove. I mean, we have huge amounts of financing that need to be funded and less and less savings to fund them. So what about treasuries, stocks, precious metals, some of those markets? How, how okay. are you viewing them now, Michael? Well, we, we turned bearish on T-bonds in October 2016. T-bond futures then were 166. They're now at uh, 143, 144. <laughs> we got mega bearish at the close of January this year, when price closed at 148 or lower for the monthly close, that broke another major massive structure on annual momentum of T-bonds, which tells us that not only is the bear underway, it's underway with a vengeance. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have counter-trend rallies. In fact, we kind of expect one now. <clears throat> but they're, they're that. They're counter-trend. They're, they're to be ignored. They're to be sold into at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that what... There's a lot of confusion right now, I think, on a day-to-day basis, and I think it's largely due to the fact that finally stocks got gut-kicked. 
And when they dropped, they dropped suddenly. They even dropped more than we thought they would in the initial break. And the wind came out of the market. Now, they've come back up easily, um, halfway back to the highs, a third of the way to the highs, some even more like the NASDAQ 100. But we watch all the developed market indices. That's to say Japan, Europe, and us. Europe is below levels it cannot close out this month. I'm talking UK and Europe. The mm-hmm. S&P 100, the DAX index, so forth. There are levels that are not permissible on our quarterly momentum studies that says, uh-huh. uh-oh, you not only slipped, you slipped below levels that broke something. Uh-huh. You're staying below them. The U.S. rebounded back above them intramont, but broke them nevertheless, and I think it's a wounded market. And I think the violence that you're seeing in the stock market has created confusion in other markets about what to do. What does it mean? You know, and therefore, when you, it's like if I grabbed a, a tablecloth and there was a lot of silverware and china on it, it all flips up in the air and shatters. So you have mm-hmm. confusion, chaos, breakage. Mm-hmm. And therefore, with the lack of order in the market, both on the upside and downside, there's a lot of confusion. In the case of gold, it's hit the gold market a little bit today. I mean, we, we, we waver in between 0310 and, uh, excuse me, 1310 and 1350 for the last month or two. But basically, that's a fairly tight zone if you look at it on a percent basis. And mm-hmm. it's all at the upper end of the last two years of trading range. Mm-hmm. So put it in context. So gold is taking it fairly well. The one area I'm most excited about is the grains and the food commodities because they didn't care one whit about what was going on in these other markets because there's no investor emotion attached to things like live cattle, corn, Mm -hmm. soybeans, and wheat. They've come up, and they're closing right now. If they close out tomorrow, the end of the month, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where they are now, they're creating annual momentum breakouts across the board, which tells me that the food commodity complex, the the area that's so sedate it's boring, is about Mm -hmm. to explode. And that's an area that most people aren't watching. That's an area I think there's the greatest percentage potential gain in a short period of time. Not that it's going to end in a short period of time, but the first surge should be quite beneficial, 30 to 40%, I think. Uh, And it is one area that has not been disturbed by the recent stock market rattling, uh, unlike most markets. So I'm, I'm very pleased with what I see, and I think to some extent investors need to stand back, not pay too much attention to the day to day in things like T-bonds and gold. Instead, keep in context what is the major trend and the current action is not violating that, namely bonds down, meaning yields higher, gold Mm -hmm. up despite the congestion. And now it's being joined by the food commodities, which is a a major (coughs) element for the global population and in terms of your metrics of what inflation is doing or not doing. And so I'm, I'm really quite happy with what's going on. As far as developed market stocks go, the S&P, I think it'll resolve downside, but I think it has to be almost by nature so irregular that mm-hmm. it confuses you most of the time. Because yeah. if it were easy, everybody would be short. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's got to be confusing. And we kind of thought that's the way it would unfold anyway because there's been so much intense uh, 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 watching of the stock market by investors and participation mm-hmm. that when it does come undone, it's got to come undone in a way that's not obvious mm-hmm. or it's confusing. And it certainly looks that way. Yeah, well, it's uh, very consistent with David Stockman's remarks to me last Friday as well, uh, Michael. He suggested that 
he thought it would be a choppy downward market that in I, fact I people will continue right. to do, will continue to look to buy the dips there's enough of that sort of notion that you can still when the market gets smacked real hard you can go back in and and it's onward and upward again have, have we uh, got another minute yeah, we do, oh, sure. Okay, I was going to say something about uh, Stockman's commentary. There are a lot of mega bears out there who are always bearish. They've been that way for 10, 20 years. You know, the world's going to come apart. Right. Stockman is a very flexible guy. I, I, I've read his stuff. I like what he says, and I like the fact that he, is, he moves with the realities, not with some constant theme. Yeah. But I happen to agree with him on a technical basis with his fundamentals, and I think we're at a point now where we've undergone many, quote, crises, debt crises, stock crises over the last, uh, since 2000, that we survive, that don't coalesce into something grand. And I think this time around, the, the pieces are set such that when this time we, we have the crisis, whether it's credit related or whatever, I think many pieces will move together. It will be not just be isolated to the housing area. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll be so widespread that it's it will be, it'd be like the end of a symphony, okay? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's all well, coming I, together. I think he's right on that yeah. point. Well, I think that's that's very consistent with what David thinks, the uh, the mother of all bears, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, Mother Nature has to have its way. Ultimately, they can, uh, they can play with it for a while, but ultimately, Mother Nature wins out, I think. And uh, you certainly are a believer in that, Michael. I want to thank you very much for being with us again. Always, your insights are always so so important to us, and uh, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Well, f- folks, that is uh, it for this uh, for this uh, segment. We do have to go to break now, but you don't want to go away because Dr. Quentin Henning is going to be with me now. His company, Novo Resources, is one of the few that's bucked the trends the trend these days for gold stocks. Most all gold stocks are down, but as I look at the screen now, Novo is up ten and a half percent today. Sweet for those of us that own the stock, and Dr. Henning will be with us to tell us what's going on in northwestern Australia with Noble Resources, so don't go away. I'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He's the president and chairman of Novo Resources. And uh, for those of you who are regular listeners to this show, very familiar with Novo Resources. It's been a sponsor to the show for some time now. We uh, picked up the stock long before it became popular. It uh, rose from... Oh, I think around 65 cents or so in U.S. money last July went all the way up to around $7, attached $7 in U.S. funds, came back, corrected fairly significantly, uh, kissed $2 a share for a very brief period of time, and now it's up a little over 3 In fact, today, stock is up over 10% on a day in which almost every gold stock that I've seen is down and down pretty hard in a general generally tough market today. Uh, Novo trades in New York, uh, that is in the United States, under the symbol NSRPF, which is uh, where I bought the stock. Uh, trades in Canada under NVO, $3.31 in U.S. money today, 152 million shares or thereabouts. Outstanding. So uh, thanks for joining me again, Dr. Henning. It's really good to have you with me. Thank you very mu- much, Jay. It's always a pleasure. Always good to have you, and it's always good to have you on this continent, at least for a breather once in a while. You're most of the time spending your time in northwestern Australia in what is one of the most exciting exploration, I would say exciting and unusual exploration plays that I've seen in the 30 or 40 years that I've been following junior exploration stocks. Well, uh, you say you don't know what's going on in today's market. I mean, you, you're, I guess you're just keeping your nose to the ground, and you're working real hard trying to build a mining project. Uh, but the stock is up very nicely today in a, what is otherwise a bad market. Somebody somebody has to see some value there buying that stock in a day when almost nobody wants to buy gold stocks, eh? Jay, you, you're giving credit here, but I'm thinking it's because of your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very nice. But you're flattering me, but I know, you know, um, what what did somebody say? Don't try to BS a BSer or something like that. No, <laughs> no. I, I my show has nothing to do with it. I we I'm sure we bought brought a few buyers. I know we have along the way, but I think it's more like the Eric Sprots of this world, the big boys that play in this market. Uh, but whatever, everybody everybody counts. And what really gives me joy is when I have subscribers that uh, say how thankful they are. One, in fact, said that he was able to buy his house as a result of your stock. So, That's Quentin, good. you work hard. You don't know these things. But some of us, and I'm sure you hear from some of these people, too, from time to time. But let's get right into your project and what you're doing there in northwestern Australia. Um, you had been working at Purdy's Reward, and now you've moved over to Comet Well. You you started with Purdy's Reward, which I, I believe was not would not have been your starting point if you were it not for that was the only area that you had permits to start exploring on but now you've moved over to the much larger comet well uh, target uh, along the same strike length and I think if you if I remember you have something like seven or seven and a half kilometers of strike of uh, what what I believe was um, formerly say shoreline of a, of a deep basin of a basin of a shallow basin uh, marine environment, and they're finding all these nuggets with um, 
uh, along the seven kilometer strike length, which has gotten the markets very, very excited, obviously. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about Purdue's reward and what you're seeing now that you've gone over to Comet Well. I know you put out on February 14th, you put out a press release talking about some of those results, which to me look very promising. But can you give us an update on what you're finding over at Comet Well and how that might differ from what you found at Purdue's reward? Sure thing, Jay. Uh, look, uh, last year we spent uh, most of our effort, most of our time uh, working on the Purdue's reward tenement. Uh, Purdue's reward has roughly a kilometer and a half of strike along this conglomerate horizon that you just described. Uh, it's up at the northeast end of the trend, so uh, the, the conglomerate section basically can, continues straight across the property boundary onto what we call a Comet Well tenements. These are tenements that are su- subject to a different agreement. Purdue's is a joint venture between uh, Novo and Artemis Resources, whereas Comet Well is uh, uh, an 80-20 joint venture, Novo with 80, and uh, we have two gentlemen we're in uh, uh, in joint venture with. They, they're local uh, to the Pilbara region. Uh, and we're, we're moving this project forward, uh, you know, through the similar exploration to what we did last year. We, uh, we experimented with large-scale trenching uh, late in the season last year at Purdy's. Uh, we really had to cut our teeth. I, I can't emphasize enough how uh, challenging some aspects of this project are, but we've we've learned through uh, you know because of the coarse gold uh, nature of the system that we have to take bulk samples. All right, so we've come to the conclusion that uh, we are targeting samples, say, on the minimum size of five tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the the large sample size, we've also had to go out and find uh, a suitable uh, test plant that we could put the material through. And actually generate some some meaningful numbers. Okay, so we did that. We uh, announced that we secured a, a test plant that belongs to SGS. It's a global corporation that does uh, you know geochemical analyses and things. So it's a reputable lab. Uh, we can get you know certified results as a product, which is really really important to us. All right. So this plant is down in Perth. It's in a, a little suburb on the north end of Perth. Uh, our plan is to collect uh, five to, say, ten-ton samples from site. Uh, we are putting these in large wooden crates. We, we, we literally had to go out and design our own, uh, you know, crates and everything. I mean, we're, we're starting from the ground up here. Mm-hmm. But people must understand, uh, you know, and, and hopefully be patient with us while we, we experiment with uh, how, you know, we take these samples. So on the, on the rock face, for example, uh, people can see from the news release, uh, uh, let's just say it was February 14th, I guess, uh, some photos of what we're doing there. Um, we, we are cleaning the rock face as, as good as we can. We're basically stripping all the soil, all the oxidized material off of the, the outcrop so that we're down into you know good, fresh, hard rock. Uh, we start by doing metal detecting. Uh, a lot of people ask me questions about metal detecting. Look, we try to do it routinely, but it's absolutely critical, as we've learned, that we have to get rid of all the rubbish. You know, there can't be soil on top because there's mm-hmm. some, there's nuggets in the soil. Uh, even little flecks of steel off the, 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 you know, excavator and bulldozer can cause problems. So we've got it down to a system where we blow the, the outcrop off with high-pressure air. It, it basically cleans everything away, and then when we metal detect, now we have, you know, a high confidence that the, the little detector strikes, the signals we get, are probably nuggets, all right? So this is an important aspect. Then uh, sampling, okay, so sampling uh, entails, uh, you know, identifying uh, the geologic uh, 
parts of the section that we, we would like to sample. Okay, the entire conglomerate section is something like 30 meters thick at, at Comet Well. Um, to give you a perspective, if we sample every half meter, that would be 60 samples just to take, uh, you know, from, from Comet Well alone. Uh, mm-hmm. These bulk samples, uh, put it in perspective, are going to cost something like $30,000 per sample. Wow. To produce a number. Okay, so... What we're doing is we're targeting the lower part of the section first. Uh, we have areas where you know there's demonstrable d- detector signals. Uh, we're taking bulk samples from those. Um, the we're having to experiment a bit, you know, because when they when they try breaking the rock with the moils and the little hydraulic uh, you know rock uh, breakers on the excavator, uh, rock was flying all over the place. Well. You know, these are little things you don't think of when you start mm-hmm. something like this, but they're important. So we've we've learned to get some screening to make sure all the materials contain that we don't get any contamination, you know, falling into the hole. You know, there's a lot of things we're, we're, we're learning, but we have got a system down, and it's, it seems to be working quite well. Uh, we've collected a few samples so far. Uh, we anticipate collecting, you know, out of this first trench uh, that people can see in the news release, we anticipate collecting you know, something like six or eight uh, samples in total, uh, and mostly from the lower part of the section. But, you know, through time, we'll sample some other other parts of the section as we learn a little bit more. Uh, right now, what we're doing is we're opening up the conglomerate along strike, so we're actually expanding the area uh, and really just kind of following our nose. You know, we're, we're pushing back uh, the soil and the rock and getting a feel for where the gold-bearing horizons are trending. Uh, you know, it's it's really an exercise in in patience and and uh, diligence. You know, to, mm-hmm. to track this thing, but it's very exciting. Uh, we see a thicker section. We see a different conglomerate at Comet Well than we did at Purdy's. It's uh, it's thicker, but it's also different geologically. The the lower bit of conglomerate that we have at, at Comet Well seems to have. Uh, nuggets dispersed through uh, a, a bigger thickness, so they're not all concentrated. They're not mostly concentrated on the basal surface. There's actually nuggets, uh, you know, scattered over you know three, four meters of conglomerate in in what we would consider abundance. You know, I can't quantify that, but you know, mm-hmm. you know detector hits, and we're quite excited about this. You know, this is the kind of stuff we we really are are keen to see. Now, you know, the, the $64,000 question about this project is where the heck is the flying brain gold? Yeah. It's very unusual to have a gold system that has uh, very little of any fine grain gold. Uh, as people are aware, you know, in, in uh, December, I put out news uh, talking about this issue, tried to make it very clear to everyone so they understand the complexities. But, you know, we don't know where that fine grain compo- component is right now. It could be that there's a fine grain component at Comet Well. We hope to see that. If not, you know, these bulk samples are really going to be the, the way to go. And, and we're, we're, we're to the point where we've worked our way up the learning curve. I feel very confident we can now generate uh, results to the market that are, are, you know, consistent in quality and, and approach. And, you know, it'll allow everybody to wrap their minds around what we have here. All right. How soon, Quentin, might people expect to see some some numbers coming out? Those thirty thousand dollar numbers. Yeah. Okay. So to to uh, be very very clear with everyone, uh, we don't know exactly. Okay. That you know, mm-hmm. we've got the samples going down to the lab at SGS right now, and we also have to go through a bit of a learning process uh, to put the material through these uh, this this equipment. Okay. So. 
uh, you know, SGS lab personnel are there. They're going to work with our scrutineers. And by the way, Jay, everything we do is scrutineered. Like there's in, independent people on site all the time. That's good. Very you know, good. Both at the property and also at the laboratory to make sure, you know, everything's done absolutely, you know, perfect and there's no no issues. Okay. So, sure. Good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the sampling, uh, or sorry, the processing of the samples uh, is probably going to take about four weeks maybe, maybe mm-hmm. six, let's call it. So I would say we'll call it early April, maybe mid-April, when we, we should be able to generate some numbers to put out to the market. All right, very good. Uh, there was some issue to do with a, so, with a sorting technology. You were using a, or the first bulk sample or so that you did over at Purdy's Reward, and then you had some difficulty with a different machine that was used uh, yes. That sorting, uh, the sorting machine, it could com- could be very very important in, in that it's able to get rid of the low value uh, rock and and uh, f- concentrate and process the higher grade rock. Is there any news on that front? Look, uh, we are using a different processing scheme to treat these bulk samples. I want to make that clear. So let's let's wind back the clock now and talk to uh, talk about our original plan. Uh, back in July and August, we put a sample through. Uh, the Nagram Laboratory in Perth, and they used, they, they happened to have uh, an, a Steiner ore sorting machine on site, okay, it was in transit to another mining facility in Australia, but they they were able to put our first sample through that machine, and it did a fantastic job, it, it basically took the rock, uh, concentrated most of the gold into a very small fraction, I think it was like two or two and a half percent of the overall mass. Mm-hmm. It worked like a charm. All right, so we thought, okay, this is this is good. We can we can do this uh, routinely going forward. Um, look, I wasn't, you know, I was not quite clear what happened with the second machine until uh, I got a bit of clarity, you know, through various channels uh, late in the year. But uh, it sounds like the second machine was not quite the same type of machine mm-hmm. as the first one. Uh, because of that, because the, the whatever devices are on it, they, they're, you know, are used to pick the rock, uh, they weren't uh, as effective, I guess, is the best way to put it. So the mass pull was something like 25% instead of 2%. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made things problematic because we ended up with too much concentrate. And, you know, once again, it became a sampling issue. So we've kind of backed off from that. But I can say that the Steiner, you know, technology is indeed sound, and that yes, if we if we you know look the the lead time to order one of these machines is something like a year. <laughs> uh, so, look, we are talking. We've talked with Steiner about securing a, a machine that was similar to the first one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but that that that'll come with time. Okay, those sure. are just discussions at this point. All right. Well, Quentin, so far the. You know, it's understandable, but the efforts have been based on this shallow, um, daylighted gold mineralization. Uh, you staked uh, something like ten thousand square kilometers, or something like that, down deeper into the into the basin. Uh, what are your plans for that? Because one of the one of the concerns I had a subscriber write to me and say he's afraid that maybe what happens is some of the, one of the big fish come along and swallow up Novo on the basis of, you know, a few million ounces on the, on the surface, which sounds like a pretty good deal to me, actually. Well, but a, a few million ounces and, and somebody, and, and when, in fact, you know, your, your view has always been sort of maybe deeper in the basin, there could be the carbon leaders or something more akin to what you saw in South Africa. Um, w- can you comment a little bit on what your plans might be 
to explore at least preliminarily down deeper into the basin? Sure. Look, uh, you know, obviously to explore down deeper into the basin, we're talking about drilling. That's it really yeah. what it means to uh, explore without sinking a shaft, say. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, we are stepping out. Of, you know, if people look at the news late in December there, we did some drilling uh, down dip at Purdy's, for example, you know, a few hundred meters. And, you know, I'll be darned, the, the conglomerate system is evolving. You can see some, uh, you know, fairly profound changes in the rocks mm-hmm. uh, as you go out in the basin. So, we know that we're going out into uh, a somewhat deeper water environment, you know, uh, further from shore. Um, we are going to do the same thing at, at Comet Well. We'll drill some holes out there and see how the geology changes. Uh, you know, but the challenge becomes gold. Uh, how do you evaluate the actual gold content of those rocks? We don't, uh, we we cannot do that through cordial. Okay, it's, it's very important people understand that. It's just a limitation we have. Uh, really, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I guess the best answer I could provide this uh, gentleman who you, you mentioned, uh, I would say that the way this will evolve will likely be through uh, this trench work we're doing, but then a next step will be, say, a trial phase of mining. Mm-hmm. And through that trial mining, uh, perhaps uh, we, we start putting some declines or something like that down into the, the conglomerate units and exploring them in the subsurface. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that can be driven by the core drilling we're doing. In other words, we can see the conglomerate. You know, so it's very easy to, to make us certain assumptions. Uh, you know, the, the conglomerate, you know, 500 meters down dip looks a lot like the conglomerate we're sampling in the trench. Mm-hmm. And was, well, you know, you can start to conjecture about these things. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but we're going to have to chip away at it. Look, when the Vitvaters run was found, uh, they, if you read the news articles from that time period, they kept thinking, everybody kept thinking, oh, the system's going to cut out. You know, as soon as they hit 100 meters, uh, it's going to, you know, evaporate and it'll all be done. Then 300 meters and 500 meters and a kilometer. You know, you read the news articles from that time period. <laughs> it's actually remarkable how the Vitvatersrand, you know, the Johannesburg deve- uh, uh, district, the Central Rand district developed, okay? If people want a sense of how this might play out, they should l- do a little research on Google. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, we're just about out of time. I have to ask you about your burn rate now, because you must be burning through an awful lot of money very fast, as you've been very thankful to Kirkland Lake for coming through and, and providing some great financing on before you had even the first drill hole down. And and that is, uh, I guess you're in pretty good shape yet for a while, but could you talk about just, just briefly, you know, your burn rate and how long, uh, you know, how long you can keep going with what you have in the till right now? Absolutely, Jay. It's very important. Okay, so we have right about about seventy million dollars right now. In fact, that's about what we had back in October. The reason we still have seventy million is because we have seen warrant exercises. We've seen about, I think, around five or six million dollars uh, in warrant money exercise mm-hmm. since October first, and that's helped us, you know, basically tread water in terms of cash. We are going through about a million and a half to two million dollars a month. And we anticipate doing so for the foreseeable future. Now, that will, will change as time goes on. If we go to trial mining, the cost might go up, but that's uh, a year or so down the road. Okay, so right now we have a, a very, very good cash balance and a very manageable uh, burn rate. And uh, I, I, I don't even lose sleep at night worrying about money. Well, that's that's good because I I knew a time when you did lose a bit bit of sleep, or at least I think you might have. But uh, in any event, Quentin, I want to thank you very much. So, what what should people be looking forward now to? I guess the the April 
assays, any anything else that might come out before then? Any drill results or any drilling, any information that might come out from scout drilling or anything else we might learn from you? Look, what we'll probably put out is information about uh, both the trench results and drilling at the same time, uh, similar to what we did in December, so people can compare, you know, how things are, are looking, like they get the full picture. Uh, okay, so so that will be sometime in April. In between now and then, I'm likely to provide some updates about the sampling we're doing and more information as we open up more trenches and stuff. People will get a flavor for what what we're actually seeing on the ground. Um you know, but after April, okay, after we get the first results out, there should be a, a series of results, uh, both sample results, for the next few months following uh, April. But our ultimate goal is to to determine this trajectory towards trial mining, say, sometime around mid, mid-year. Mm-hmm. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Quentin, for your time. Always a pleasure hearing uh, what, what you're doing there with Novo. Um, I, I really wish you all the best for obviously for selfish reasons because it is the largest holding in my portfolio. It's one that my subscribers have done well with, and uh, well, we'd really like to see you create more wealth out there with a new great new discovery in Australia. So thank you very much for being with us, and we'll look forward to keeping up with you in the future. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with me to talk about uh, some very important issues uh, concerning the markets where are we now in the credit cycle you know are we getting close to some sort of a, of a problem again uh, interest rates spiking higher equities going down what will that mean for gold those are some of the questions we'll be asking Alistair so don't go away we'll be right back Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Alistair McLeod with me once again. Uh, thanks for joining me, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Always good to have you. I know it's late your time, and, and I'm running a little late, so uh, let's jump right into it. Your, your most recent article that you wrote has to do with uh, where are we now in the credit cycle. And um, you start out by defining or, or differentiating between a business cycle and a credit cycle. Could you do that for our listeners? Yes. Um, everybody thinks, and particularly central bankers, think that uh, there is a business cycle. In other words, the implication is that uh, the origin of it is in the private sector, something to do with business, something to do with changing, um, if you like, emotions in, you know, in, in the uh, free markets. It's completely wrong. Actually, the business cycle is the symptom of a credit cycle, and the credit cycle is uh, induced by central banks' monetary policy. Right. And, in fact, you make the point that with sound money, if we actually had sound money, there would be no business cycle, right? Precisely. I mean, look at it this way. If you had sound money, in other words, no expansion of bank credit, but a constant amount of bank credit, constant amount of base money as well, then you would find that the um, failures and successes in the economy would be random. Of course, you always get failures. Entrepreneurial business is about taking risk, and risk basically means sometimes you get it wrong. But what happens in those circumstances is an entrepreneur who's tied up capital in something that isn't working very, very quickly decides, cut, move on, move on, find a better idea where I'm actually going to get return on capital. That is the condition. It's a sort of random um, success and failure that you get. No cycle whatsoever when you have sound money. And what central banks do is they bunch everybody into, um, uh, you know, first of all, um, they bunch them by offering cheap money, uh, mm-hmm. low interest rates, expanding bank credit, encouraging the banks to go and lend. And the result is that people borrow on the wrong terms. And uh, uh, then, of course, inflation, price inflation starts to pick up as that money um, begins to move into the economy and drive up prices. So interest rates have to go up to try and stop the inflation. And if the central bank doesn't raise interest rates, then the uh, the market itself will. You'll find the bond yields rise because nobody is prepared to accept uh, a yield uh, which is uh, demonstrably less than uh, the rate of inflation. It just doesn't, price inflation, it doesn't make any sense. So the whole thing gets out of control the moment the central bank starts stimulating the economy by expanding the quantity of money. Mm-hmm. All right, in your article, you talk about four uh, four phases in the credit cycle. You have the post-crisis stabilization. I suppose that would have, go, looking back at the last cycle, that would have been following the 2008-2009 point of uh, a period of time when they stabilized the system. Then you have a recovery. Then you have expansion. And then you have crisis. I'm, I'm guessing that you would suggest we're in the expansion phase now or at the start of that? 
Yes, we are uh, um, at the start of the expansion phase. Um, it's, it's, uh, I have to say it's less obvious in America because money supply, and particularly if you look at uh, true money supply, uh, the rate of, it, of growth has actually slowed. But if you put that to one side, look at what's going on in the European Union, look at what's going on in China, You've, and look what's going on in Japan. You've got good, strong recovery. Now, what that does is it makes banks think, hold on, we own bonds. Bonds are losing us money. We are missing out on an improving sentiment uh, mm -hmm. amongst our business customers. We ought to be competing with other banks in order to get market share, lending to pharmaceutical companies, lending to engineers, and so on and so forth. So you can see that the, you know, the, the sort of herd instinct of, uh, of banks seeking to move out of bonds and into bank lending, uh, proper bank lending in the non-financial economy, that's something that is a bit of a herd instinct. And uh, we're seeing this around the world now. I mean, if you look at the reports that are coming from the IMF, for example, and various other bodies like the Bank of International Settlements, they're all upgrading their estimates of the performance of the economy of all the components that they study. And so uh, this is this is a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, I really do think that uh, it won't be very long before the US banks start expanding their credit as well for exactly the same reasons. I can identify with that uh, very well with that, Alistair. I was a credit analyst and a bank lending officer myself in the past, and I know that the bankers go through these cycles. So they start to compete, and they look around, and they see, oh, Citicorp's doing this, Chase is doing this, to, you know, some Bank of America is doing, and oh, we better get out there and beat those guys to this deal. And it, and then it, the lending standards become more and more lax as the cycle progresses, as that phase of the cycle progresses, and then you run into trouble again, and then you run into big trouble again, and you start having failures. And of course, as interest rates are rising, they're rising very dramatically, uh, at least in, in compared to where they've come from now, uh, which really raises the question that I have for you, and I think gets to the heart of what you're trying to, to address in your essay, and that is how far can it go? And I know you had a chart in there that showed um, the federal funds rate, and you drew a line down through the peaks of the past, cy of the past cycles. And it looks pitifully low, like I think maybe 2.4% or so on the federal funds rate. And if I see, I think we're somewhere around 1.4 or 1.5 now, something like that, federal funds rate in the U.S. So is, yes. is that what you're suggesting? We don't, we don't have very far to go this cycle because uh, every cycle is, well, you explained that in the article as well. We never, the Federal Reserve, the central banks never allow a clearing out. They never allow a return to equilibrium. One cycle is piled on top of another without the previous one ever being completely corrected, right? That is, that is correct. And the reason that uh, the peaks, if you like, which trigger the crisis are getting lower and lower is because the symptom of uh, the economy, in this case we're looking at the United States, uh, which drives it lower basically is the accumulation of debt. Uh, mm -hmm. The debt gets larger and larger every cycle because it doesn't clear out. Yeah. And uh, uh, as you rightly say, I mean, if you just draw, it's, it's mechanical, you just draw that dotted line, uh, it rather suggests that when we get to something around about 2.5%, then um, you know we, we could be running into dangerous territory again. I mean, that's ridiculously low, 2.5%, for goodness right. sake. And what's the rate of inflation in the United States at the moment. I'm sorry, I don't believe the official figures, yeah. the, uh, the true rate 
is far higher. And I'll, I'll give you um, an, an instance as to why um, the inflation figures are just complete rubbish. Um, if you if you uh, bought a, um, a, a most car, let's say, in 1997, I understand the average cost was $19,214. Mm. Um, the average price of a new car uh, at the, uh, last year was $33,560. Now, because of hedonics, in other words, the adjustments for the improvements that uh, you get in uh, a product, um, the the uh, uh, you know the the government's inflation figures figures tell us that that's a zero percent increase. Right. You know. I, <laughs> yeah, they give so, all kinds of yeah. You know, I just take that as an example of how distorted uh, uh, and how um, economical with truth government inflation statistics are. It's not the only statistic which is which is um, uh, uh, economical with the truth, if I can put it that way. So, I mean, anyone who relies on government statistics to guide themselves, I think, is actually uh, likely to come a cropper. And that's why uh, the one thing that you can look at is you can look at the flows of money. And that's why I think when you see money starting to leave the financial side of the economy and moving into the non-financial side of the economy, you can say that this is really evidence that we are moving into the expansion phase. So uh, there is only that phase before we have the crisis itself. So the next question I guess you would ask is how long is it going to be before the crisis happens? Yeah, um, that's harder to answer, I suppose. Yeah, well, um, you, I think you can sort of get ideas as to how long it's likely to be. Um, I mean, given that the whole world is uh, has been expanding the quantity of money very, very rapidly, and even though it has slowed a bit in the United States, uh, if you look at the European Union, for example, they still have negative deposit rates of the ECB. The ECB is still doing 30 billion euros of, of um, uh, QE and uh, looks like extending it through um, uh, through next September. I, I mean, this is, at this stage of the cycle, this is completely crazy. The ECB is sort of looking at the exchange rate, which goes up and up and up and up, uh, really because uh, the Eurozone, led by Germany in particular, has a trade surplus and sort of thinks that uh, a higher uh, euro basically is going to um, reduce uh, the potential for inflation to hit the ECB's figure of 2%. So, I mean, you know, they're following a mandate blindly, rather like a, a mouse going into a mice, mouse trap. It's, <laughs> it's a very dangerous situation. So, uh, I think the point in terms of the timing is that central bankers are still gung-ho, behaving as if uh, the, uh, their economies were well under capacity uh, in terms of their potential. Uh, and so, you know, with everybody doing the same thing, what happens is that you get all this money going into the real economy, the non-financial economy in the Eurozone, in China, in Britain, in Japan, and throughout the whole of Asia, throughout the whole of... Um, <laughs> Europe. And uh, the consequence uh, of, of that is to just drive up prices more rapidly because they're all doing it together. And uh, based on that thought and the low um, level at which uh, I think that the next, the low level of interest rates at which the next crisis is going to be triggered, I'm inclined to think that the crisis will be on us probably by the end of this year. And, pro oh. you know, if it doesn't happen by the end of this year, it will be maybe first quarter of uh, 2019. Yeah, you point out in your article, actually, the synchronization 
of the cycle now with the G20, with all these central bankers pretty much playing ball together. Uh, in the old days, we had some offsetting. You would have, you know, some parts of the world were strong and others were weak, and it was sort of offset. But this, this uh, pretends for a more pronounced cycle, more pronounced downturn, I would suggest. I mean, last time, I think China grew quite a bit. Uh, you know, whatever means they use to grow in China is a statist economy for sure. But nonetheless, the demands for the Chinese economy for raw materials and so forth and so on helped. Uh, is it your sense that maybe the whole world is more synchronized now than it was before 2007 and eight? Yes, absolutely. Uh, blame the G20. Uh, mm -hmm. Finance ministers and uh, also uh, central bankers meet at these G20 meetings to synchronize everything. They're succeeding in synchronizing everything. But what they're doing is they're betting that they're right. And uh, they're going to have control over the whole situation by working together. Uh, I would say that uh, anyone who understands, going back to that original point about what happens when you have sound money and you get a randomized process of the no cycles, actually what they're doing is they're making the cycles even more violent. Yes. More and more pronounced. Well, if so, the central bankers, though, are believing the government's inflation numbers. So they will, uh, you know, they will see no reason to, I mean, but right now they're trying to normalize the Fed and I guess other central banks may be getting around to it too, to normalize their balance sheet is the, is the terminology they use, means to get rid of their uh, their their uh, their borrowings or to their treasury holdings and so David Stockman who I interviewed last Friday was talking about how he believes we're in for at least four rate hikes this year he suggests that in fact and then he looks at the the fact that the next fiscal year even the optimistic views of the government is that we'll be running a 1.2 trillion dollar deficit and then on top of that the central bank scheduled to take away 600 billion dollars so you know, supply and demand suggest interest rates are going to have to go a heck of a lot higher than they are now in order well, for the treasuries to be funded. And then at, at what sense, though, at what time do the central bankers give in in their normalization policy and have to go back to printing money like, like mad again? Well, they have a huge, great problem on this one, and that is uh, they just don't want this to happen. The worst thing that can happen to a central bank is economic recovery, <laughs> I'm afraid, because yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, before that happens, they can sort of continue as normal. Uh, there's no way that price inflation picks up because all the money is bottled up in uh, yeah. uh, the financial sector. But mm -hmm. no, I think uh, the quotes that you um, just gave me of uh, David Stockman's, I think I would agree with wholeheartedly, and I would even add to it, and that is is that the years of um, uh, of a bullish dollar has meant that um, foreign-owned portfolios have a very high dollar content in them. Yeah. The last figure that was recorded uh, by the uh, U.S. Treasury was around about $17.39 trillion, the highest it has ever been. There's no doubt that from the previous figure, uh, which was 2015, middle of 2015, um, this growth was losing momentum. Now, just imagine what happens as the dollar declines. All those portfolio holdings uh, are going to be um, at risk, and uh, they are likely to turn sellers. Not only that, but we know that uh, China has enormous infrastructure plans for the whole of Asia. That is going to require huge amounts of capital. Where's that capital going to come from? I right. suggest that some of it will come from the dollar holdings in these international right. portfolios. So adding to what you were saying, you have got foreign sellers of dollars 
foreign sellers of U.S. Treasuries, you have got the uh, increase in the budget deficit, meaning that the issuance is going to increase to, uh, and I, I think uh, um, David Stockman's figure at 1.2 trillion. I would not disagree with that. I think it's quite likely. And in the middle of this, you have got the Fed saying, "Well, we want to reduce our balance sheet," which basically yeah. means running off, you know, running off holdings. And, okay, uh, Alistair, we're going to have to leave it go terrible. with that now. We got a weak dollar ahead of us now. We're out of time, basically, but we've got a weak dollar ahead of us. Should be bullish for gold, I would guess. People ought to be exchanging their dollars for gold. I'm sure you agree with that. Precisely. All right. Well, folks, unfortunately, we're out of time. Alistair would have so much more to tell us. We'll have to have him back again sometime in the near future. But that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, Dan Oliver will be with us. Michael Oliver will be as well. Uh, And we're not sure if we've got another guest. Uh, That's what I know we have at this point in time. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.